Lord in prayer first. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are uh, thankful that uh, the words we sang this morning, that in your kingdom broken lives are made new. Um, We are also thankful that you are the strength in weakness, you are the love to the broken, and you are the joy in the sadness. There is no one like you, our God. Father, I pray that uh, this morning uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are pleasing in your sight and that we as a church um, would learn how to better be the church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. So the title of my sermon this morning is The Christian Story, God's Mission, and Our Hope. Today's world is both beautiful and broken. This simple yet paradoxical statement affirms the basic reality of our earthly existence. This world is a place of pleasure and laughter, as well as a place of pain and tears. Perhaps most of our attention is focused on the latter sentiment, the brokenness of our world. In fact, seeing the beauty of this world can become somewhat of an exercise, especially if our lives are inundated with all sorts of trials disappointments, and sufferings. It doesn't take a keen eye to observe the prevalent evil, pain, and violence in our world. It is all around us. Not only do we see the brokenness of our world across the globe, but also in our own country, communities, families, and even in our very own hearts. All it takes is one quick browse through a newspaper to notice such instances of brokenness. A few examples of our world's brokenness include... Natural catastrophes, such as the recent earthquake and tsunami in Japan, as well as the current famine in Somalia, which is resulting in a widespread shortage of resources and rampant malnutrition. There are wars, such as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, not to mention the massive wars waged throughout all of history. There is also grinding poverty. Both globally and locally, people are struggling to survive. There are even even some local Long Island towns which suffer severe poverty. Some of those places include Bellport, Riverhead, Mastic, Windanch, and Coram. There are also diseases, including the global AIDS epidemic and the abundance of cancer, which claims countless lives each year. There is also human brutality where certain people of power leverage their societal and political position in order to oppress and take advantage of weaker persons. An example of this is the ever-expanding sex slave industry, where children and women are being traded like commodities in some sort of perverted business deal. There's also disharmony, or to use my own made-up word, unshalom, where divorce is prevalent and the destruction of the environment acceptable. But all of this brokenness is only one side of the coin. We must now examine the other aspect that pervades this world, beauty. Evidence of this beauty can be seen and experienced in the loving relationships that we enjoy, whether it be the intimate love that a married couple shares or the spontaneous play that occurs between friends. All of this points towards the transcendent beauty of life. Not only do we experience beauty in our human interactions with one another, but beauty also pervades the natural world with stunning mountains, explosive sunsets, dazzling flowers, and starlit nights. Beauty exists all around us. A newborn baby, a magnificent painting, 
a musical masterpiece, an emotive dance, the pleasure of play and sport, as well as the delight of a Thanksgiving meal. All of these things bear witness to the fact that beauty exists and life can be tantalizingly enjoyable. As a result of living in this mixed reality of brokenness and beauty, we find ourselves asking, where is God? And is life really supposed to be like this? We also ask questions about justice, wondering why do bad things happen and why do the wicked prosper? We also ask questions about life's purpose, wondering will this world ever be put right? And is this life all there is? Along these same lines, the author, Phyllis Tickle, says, It is always the nature of humanity to ask, why? Life is simply too hard and too painful for us to endure, if endurance is the only purpose. It is these kinds of questions that must force us as Christians to re-examine and remind ourselves of the Christian story that we find in Scripture. It is my hope this morning to reflect on that story, the story of redemption, gleaning some insights into how we are to live in this world of beauty and brokenness as God's people. Therefore, if we are God's people, it is crucial for us to understand several things. First, what the original purpose of this world was. Second, why the world is the way it is. And third, where the future of this world is headed. In order for us to understand these things, we must enter into the Christian story found in the Bible. So, like any story, we begin at the beginning, in Genesis. And before we can even finish reading the first phrase, we must stop to marvel. In the beginning, God. With this startling statement, Moses indirectly implies that that God existed prior to or before the beginning. This means, in other words, that God is eternal. Along with God being identified as eternal, He is also recognized as the creator. In the beginning, God created. Moses understood that God was the sole source of all that is, everything in heaven and everything on the earth. Finally, and most importantly, God is triune. After examining the whole council of scripture and the tradition of the church, it is a clear confession of the Christian faith that the Christian God is one in essence and three in persons. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us that we see God's triune identity displayed from the start. Let me briefly explain what I mean and where I'm getting this from. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters, identifying God as Spirit. In verse 3, it says that God speaks and miraculously calls light into existence, identifying God as Father. And lastly, the most cryptic of the three is the mention of Jesus, or the Son, as God's spoken word. The Apostle John identifies this spoken word, capital W, with the person of Jesus when he says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Notice how similar these two passages are, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and John 1, 1 through 3. It seems very intentional that John identifies the person of Jesus with the same God of the Old Testament who created all things. 
Although it is impossible to comprehend the full majesty and grandeur of this eternal triune creator God, we can still draw some implications from the fact that God has graciously chosen to create. One of my New Testament professors at Cedarville, Dr. Tim Gombas, does a great job of explaining some magnificent beauties and perplexing truths about our triune God. He says, quote, At the very heart of God is self-expenditure. That is, each person of the Trinity gives oneself for the other, prefers the other, defers to the other, and chooses the other's highest joy and delight. In this way, God is a community of delight and joy. So the creator of the universe is an eternal community of mutual joy and delight, creating the world to have an arena for more of his joy and delight. End quote. In sum, our God is an awesome God. It is fascinating to note, before we continue into the first act of the Christian story, that from the very outset, our triune creator God takes center stage. Much like a movie, where the main character is singled out from the panorama of people in order to designate who this story will ultimately be about, so too the Christian story identifies its main character from the beginning, God, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Act 1, Creation. So as we explore God's marvelous design and the beginning chapters of Genesis, we are seeking to answer the question, what was the original purpose or intention for this world? And to find the answer to that question, it only seems appropriate to gain God's perspective of his original creation. God created a world where his only commentary was, it is good. Almost ten times God repeats this positive affirmation, which ultimately climaxes in his creation of humanity on the sixth day when God said, it is very good. At the pinnacle of God's creative activity was humanity, God's very own image bearers. As image bearers, God intended Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to join in God's creative work. God wanted them to cultivate the earth and bring forth its fruitfulness and to rule over all other areas of his creation for its benefit and blessing. Thus, God made humanity as material beings who enjoyed an embodied existence and uncorrupted physicality. God also created Adam and Eve for companionship, not only companionship with himself, but also with and for one another. After discussing the triune nature of our creator God, this should now shed further light on the fact that humans are created in this image. Just as God shares community within himself, he also desires humans to share companionship with one another. This is why God created Adam and Eve. Humans were never intended to live in isolation from God or other humans, but were created as relational and social beings. God also intended all things, humans, animals, and the environment, to work in tandem with one another, existing in perfect peace with one another. One fascinating aspect about the dynamics of the Garden of Eden worth mentioning was its abundance of life and yet its lack of any sort of violence, disharmony, or division. God's creation was a place of ultimate peace, where God, humanity, and all of the created order enjoyed harmony with one another. Finally, God's original creation was a place where God's presence was manifested in a special and potent way. God's desire was to commune with his creatures, to walk and talk with them in the garden. Thus, this made the Garden of Eden a heavenly place, 
meaning a place saturated with God's immediate and accessible presence. All in all, God's world was perfect. It was a world without a hint of suffering, evil, disharmony, violence, or death. This glorious beginning of the Christian story was intended by God to continue. Yet, sadly, the story takes a tragic turn. Act 2, The Fall. Even though this world of harmony was God's desire for his creation, his own image bearers rebelled and thereby changed the course of humanity's existence. This is the act in the Christian story which sets out to answer the second question we encountered in the introduction. Why is this world the way it is? So instead of Adam and Eve ruling over creation while being in submission to their creator, they fell prey to something within creation, a serpent, and tried to usurp God's privileged authority. Adam and Eve failed as both rulers over creation and servants under God. From that point in history up to the present day, sin has plagued our earthly existence. As a result of sin's contaminating influence in our world, we now experience atrocities that were at first foreign to God's original intention. Atrocities such as death, division, and distance from God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.12 claims that, quote, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all people because all sinned, end quote. As a result of Adam and Eve's turn towards things created, they gave up their intimate union with their life source, God. God was and is the only true source of life, and without God's gracious choice to share his own life, you and I and the things around us would cease to exist. Now, as a result of sin, something horrible happens. Our physical bodies decay and lead towards death. Also stemming from Adam and Eve's rebellion was division. Adam and Eve were created to live in total vulnerability with one another, fully searching out the uniqueness of the other. Simply put, they were naked and unashamed. But the fall seriously ruined this and caused division. The moment they sinned, their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked and hid from each other. They began to put up walls and barriers between one another, and for the first time, felt a sense of insecurity. Also notice how they turned on one another after God confronts them about what they did. Adam and Eve played the blame game. It was her fault. She gave me the fruit. No, it's the serpent's fault. He tricked me. Adam and Eve, for the first time, experienced division. Another result of the fall was Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. Adam and Eve were forced to leave their heavenly home, which was saturated with God's loving presence, and now must face a different sort of reality where God's presence remains distant. All of this leads us to God's reaction to his corrupted creation. With all of this devastating news, death, division, and distance from God, there still remains a glimmer of hope. This hope is that God is now on a mission. This mission is what we call the good news of the gospel. This good news is that God has set into motion a plan. Excuse me. This good news is that God has set into motion a plan of redemption and is active in his mission to redeem, remake, and restore his creation back to its Edenic state. This plan began right after the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden where God promises that one of Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse of sin. This promise, of course, foreshadows the person and work of Jesus, which we will get to in a moment, 
But before we jump to Jesus, we must first look at how God's redemptive mission starts off, particularly with his chosen people, Israel. Act 3, Israel. So God's mission to restore his world is picked up in Genesis 6 with God's choice of Noah and his family. Due to the rampant evil that had become of God's world in such a short period of time, God chooses to have a fresh beginning. God's motive in destroying the earth with the flood was really a way to purify the earth of evil and have a fresh beginning with Noah and his family members. Shortly after Noah and his family make it through the flood, Noah and one of his sons still exemplify their sin-tainted existence with an episode of drunkenness and shame. And eventually, Noah dies and the curse of sin still lingers. So God's mission to redeem, remake, and restore continues and picks up again with the character Abraham. God chooses Abraham and enters into a covenant with him, promising him land, blessing, and an innumerable amount of descendants. The most important aspect of God's promise to Abraham is that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In some sense, God chose Abraham and his descendants as a conduit of blessing to the nations. Abraham and his descendants, Israel, were somehow to be the means of God putting things right. This is why in Isaiah 42, 6, God says this to Israel, quote, I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. End quote. And again, later in Isaiah 49, 6, God says to Israel, I will make you a light to the nations so you can bring my salvation to the remote regions of the earth. Israel existed for the purpose of being God's vehicle of healing and blessing to the world, to participate in God's mission to redeem, remake, and restore the world. Yet Abraham, along with his descendants Israel, fail in their job to bring blessing to the nations. Instead of worshiping the one true God, Israel turned away from Yahweh and turned towards idols. They also forsook their responsibility to obey the law and failed to stand out from other nations as a holy and loving nation. In this regard, the law and all those weird regulations throughout Leviticus are really instructing Israel to be a salt-like influence among other nations. From the beginning, Israel was intended to show forth their way of living as an example to be accepted and followed by neighboring nations. Micah describes Israel's intended way of living as doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with their God. Their corporate lives were meant to be a sign to the nations that Yahweh was the one true and reigning God. Thus, the election of Israel was never meant to be an invitation into a holy huddle with an inward focus, but rather, Israel's election was a commissioning for a task of going out to bless, heal, and love other nations. Like Isaiah says, to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. At this point, we can now make several judgments about how God is choosing to work within his creation in order to restore it. Interestingly enough, it is important to note that from the start, God chooses his own image bearers to participate with him in his mission to bring restoration to this world. Notice how I say God's mission is to restore this world. God's mission of redemption is not an extraction operation. 
in the sense of saving humanity out of creation in order to be with him in some sort of ethereal heavenly reality. But rather, his mission is to bring heaven and earth together, as it was in the beginning, to make his presence imminent within creation and to rescue humanity from the effects of the fall. And all of these future hopes could not become a reality apart from the person and work of Jesus, the faithful Israelite. Act 4, the faithful Israelite, Jesus. After Israel, the next movement in God's plan of redemption is the most magnificent and explosive our world has ever experienced. In order to deal with the problem of sin, God graciously moves towards us in order to save his world. God's compassion and love compelled him to do something about the destructive effects of the fall, and God brought salvation to humanity through the sending of his Son. The first aspect of Jesus that we will look at is his life. Perhaps the most remarkable miracle that took place in the whole Bible was the event of the Incarnation. In that event, the Word became flesh. Now remember, this was the same Word who was with God in the beginning and who participated in creating all that is. The most remarkable thing of all is that this Word, who is God, becomes man for our sake. And as Matthew puts it, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The second aspect of Jesus that we will look at is his teachings. If you have learned anything about my dad's sermon series through Matthew, it is that Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Presently, there is a lot of scholarly debate as to what Jesus' kingdom parables meant and why his proclamation of the kingdom's presence was good news. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, defines the kingdom of heaven as follows. He says, quote, The kingdom of heaven is God's sovereign saving rule coming to transform everything, coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away. Doesn't that definition sound a lot like what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplished? Things like God's rule coming to transform to bring new life, and to overcome death? Perhaps some of you are caught off guard with a definition like this, or maybe you don't understand the significance of that definition. But I think the key to understanding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection lies in our understanding of his kingdom message. In my understanding, Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand was really the announcement of God's future restored world breaking partially into the present. In other words, when Jesus preached about the kingdom coming, his actions manifested its partial presence, such as the healings of diseases, the expulsion of demons, and forgiveness of sins. Jesus' presence and ministry was ushering in new creation. This brings us to the third aspect of Jesus that we will look at, Jesus' death and resurrection. Thus far, we have seen how Jesus' life, teachings, and ministry have been consistent with God's mission to redeem his creation, and Jesus' death and resurrection are no different. Jesus died in order to atone for our sins and make possible our peace and reconciliation with God, bringing us back into communion with our Creator. Yet, Yet this only accomplishes forgiveness for humanity's sin and does not deal with the curse attached to our sin, namely death. 
But the good news is this, that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering death and Satan. And now humanity has the capability of being both forgiven and granted new life. But notice how the story of redemption does not end here. Even after everything that Jesus has accomplished as part of God's mission to heal and restore this world, we still die. We still struggle with sin. We still have division. And we still feel that God is distant. Our world still remains broken and God's mission left unfinished. This brings us to the fourth aspect of Jesus that we will look at, his ascension. One of the most fascinating and unexpected turns that this story plot takes is that Jesus leaves this earth. After all the emotions the disciples must have gone through, their encounters with Jesus, first confusion, then terror, then, the de- then amazement, and now belief, seems that the gospel stories will have a hop- it seems that the gospel stories will have a happy ending with Jesus remaining by the disciples' side. Yet this is not what happens. Even the disciples thought Jesus would remain with them, asking, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Much to their surprise, and ours as well, Jesus instead commissions them for a task. Notice how Jesus doesn't simply take them to be where he is going, but rather leaves them on the earth to continue his mission. So as Jesus ascends back to the Father and commissions his disciples to go into the entire world and preach the gospel, he promises to be with his followers through the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit was given to them in Pentecost and to us by faith in order to empower us to continue doing God's work in this world. Act 5, the church. This is finally where we come in. We are Jesus' followers, we are his church, and we are God's agents of reconciliation to the world. Now that we know what God is up to in our world, reconciling, blessing, healing, forgiving, we now know our mission. Thankfully, this task of being the church has not been left up to us to accomplish alone. God God has graciously given us his spirit in order to energize and guide us in that same task that he himself is up to. By no means is this an easy task, though. As Jesus' followers, we too must take up our crosses and follow him. Since this world still remains in its broken state and has not yet been fully redeemed, following Jesus will result in conflict, pain, and sacrifice. It is easy in our culture to opt out of this path and choose the path of least resistance that the world offers. But the truth of the matter is that although the path of discipleship is always the way of the cross, something greater lies just over the hill of Calvary, and that is new life, resurrection life. This is what Jesus desires for us, and even more than that, offers to us. So to go back to the beginning, it is no accident that we are called and created to be God's image bearers. In fact, we are to reflect him, portray him, and imitate him. We are to make known his ways to the world and his desires for the world. The Apostle Paul, in fact, uses some pretty amazing phrases to describe the mission of the people of God. We are called the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ, the household of God, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of these descriptions of the church have a similar tone, and that is that the church is the place where God's presence is located, 
God's mission enacted, and God's ways discovered. These terms also carry a large weight of responsibility. We are to act as extensions of God's own self. So, many of you may be wondering right now, well, what does all of this mean? Like, what am I supposed to do? How do I become a better Christian? Well, my first response to those questions would be to direct your attention back to God's mission and the church, since this is the act of of the redemption story that we actually get to play a part in. God has granted us the privilege of participating with him in his mission. And my question is, how are we, as New Village Church, participating in God's mission to bring light, love, healing, and redemption to this broken world? Let's think back to the introduction where I listed all those examples of brokenness that existed in our world. Our church should be directly involved in helping to bring peace, love, healing, and hope to those situations. So instead of talking in the abstract, um, I, will give, I will now give you some concrete examples of what I mean. So let's think for a moment about the community that surrounds us this morning, Lake Grove. What are some steps that our church has already taken to engage our community for their benefit, blessing, or healing? Well, we have the church fair, the living nativity, soccer camp, Christianity Explored, and VBS. All of these events seek to reach out to local families with an open hand, looking to bless, love, and encourage. But I am seeking this morning to challenge our church to become more involved in God's mission and thus more involved in reaching out to our community. We as a church should be brainstorming and strategizing how to best how to best love our neighbors here in Lake Grove. We should be suggesting and implementing ideas about how to help single mothers in our area, or struggling marriages, or depressed teens, or the lonely elderly, or learning disabled kids. Our church should be the place showing love and acceptance to these people and coming up with ways to help them and to show them just how much God loves them. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church could provide babysitting for single mothers in our area? Or marriage counseling classes for struggling couples? Or befriend those teens who are depressed? Or invite the lonely elderly people in our community over for meals? Or befriend or or offer tutoring classes for kids who are struggling in school? These are some areas where we could be putting our time and effort because it is It is these kinds of things that will bring healing, love, and redemption into their lives. Now, individually or on a more personal level, you may ask, how do I play my part in this plan? Where do I fit in? And what does this look like in real life? Well, those are all the right kind of questions to be asking, and here are several ideas I came up with. Simply put, the first steps to becoming more faithful Christians is by seeking to imitate Jesus. This means doing good and strategizing to bless other people. This may include things like writing encouraging notes to those who need uplifting, inviting someone over for a meal who is lonely, volunteering some of your time to help the ministry leaders of this church, or being a better neighbor, or sharing the love of God with acquaintances or strangers by telling them about Jesus. Perhaps following Jesus means giving away some of your resources to help those who are in need or finding ways to financially support ministries that are doing the work of God in places that you yourself cannot reach, 
as well as creatively looking for opportunities to serve other people. It must be remembered that all of these acts are ways that point to God's mission in this world. Our actions as Christians must show forth the mission of God, which is to go into the darkest places of this world and bring the light of Jesus to bear on those situations. Whatever dark corners are in your life, it is your responsibility to bring the light of Jesus to those places. Whether that be your society, community, family, or your very own heart, our constant reminder must be to stay on mission with God. To restate this mission again, it is to be in the business of redeeming, remaking, and restoring the broken aspects of the world around us. If you see the brokenness around you, it is your responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus to that person or that situation. And even though we know what happened to Jesus' hands and feet, we must be reminded of the future Christian hope that awaits us if we continue in faith. So I've given several brief statements about what I think the future Christian hope is and how that impacts the present mission of the God's people, the church. But now I want to explain in more detail what the full and final accomplishment of God's mission will look like. Act 6, New Creation. So to return to some of the thoughts we have hinted at earlier, we must remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that God has set into motion a plan, a plan that is made possible through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and a plan that is carried along by the work of the Spirit in the church. This plan, God's plan, is a plan to set the world right again, to heal this world of its brokenness. As the prophet Amos says, God's plan is to make the world a place where, quote, justice must flow like torrents of water and righteous actions like a stream that never dries up, end quote. The prophet Isaiah envisions a world where wars cease and peace abounds, a world where the wolf will live alongside the lamb and where a child will play over a snake's den. Isaiah envisions a world where God's rule is evident, which will bring forth peace, justice, and harmony to all aspects of creation. The Apostle John in Revelation 21, our scripture reading this morning, has a similar and hopeful vision of this future world, and he describes it as a place where God makes his home among human beings, a world where death no longer exists, nor mourning or crying or pain, for the former things, the results of the fall, have ceased to exist. This mission of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, to set the world right again, is exactly what we can say God is up to. God's mission to our world and for our world is a mission of healing, reconciliation, forgiveness, salvation, blessing, redemption, and ultimately glorification. It is this hope of glorification that we, find, that we all find ourselves longing for and looking forward to a world where the tension of beauty and brokenness no longer exists. We are looking forward to a time when we enjoy a world that is saturated with God's presence and goodness, a place where peace, justice, and love will rule. So all that is left to say is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, 
as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.